You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, George Cedarquist, and Matt Cummings. All right, this week, George goes inside the huddle for a doubleheader with two of the team behind Gods of the Game, the football opera that opened at Grange Park Opera in England. The discussion kicks off with the company's founder and chief executive, Wasfi Kani, and concludes with cast member Millie Forrest. And then, friend of the show, Larry Brownlee, takes a free throw on the comic tragic role of Ramos Platé, the star bel canto tenor's first French Baroque role, plus in the two-minute drill, while government funding for British opera houses face turmoil, English national opera may put the company's home court advantage at risk. The dollar is still strong, though. American opera Anglophiles, let's bail them out. That would be you, George. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. And without further ado, it's Oliver Camacho. Why, thanks. Um, I think the read on American Opera Anglophiles, I wonder if... That's my bad. I wonder if the syntax of that makes sense. I mean to say <laughs> people who are American, who are operaphiles and anglophiles. And anglophiles. Anglo-operaphiles, if you will. Yeah. Opera, mm. opera, opera anglophiles? Anyway, that's mostly George, <laughs> at least on this <laughs> Chicago scene. Uh, yes, uh, certainly um, he thinks a lot about Gilbert and Sullivan, which yeah. I think qualifies him. Matt Cummings, how's it going? I mean, that Gilbert and Sullivan is basically the prerequisite to be an opera-anglo-file. <laughs> like Frauenliebe und Leben, can you do that in English? <laughs> I have a little note from George here in Sports Talk. He says, it's tiresome enough having to deal with the undefeated Eagles. Thank God the Phillies lost the World Series and the Union lost to the MLS Cup Final. And double thank God Bama lost to LSU. Well, I don't really appreciate that last one that George made me read because, as you all know, I'm all about that tide keeping on rolling. The Phillies, I feel bad because, like, we are friends with Philadelphia. They lost to Houston. Are we friends with Houston? Uh... We're definitely really not friendly with Dallas anymore. So, yeah, I don't know what uh, what this state of uh, politics is. Or yeah, maybe this is like between... the enemy of your enemy is your friend. <laughs> yeah, it, it could be. It could be. Okay, um, but I wanted to just quickly shout out uh, Holger Runa, nineteen year old Danish um, t- tennis player who won the Paris Masters final um, against Novak Djokovic. And it looked like he was going to be defeated by Djokovic because Djokovic is famous for coming back and uh, just crushing his opponents. But this kid, 19 years old now, is going to make it into the top 10 uh, after beating just about everybody in the Paris Masters. And um, when he got up to make his speech, I, for the first time, felt bad for Novak Djokovic because, I mean, I'm not that much of a fan of Novak anymore. But uh, oh, just why? Novak. Did something happen? <laughs> <laughs> just Novak just standing there looking like his, you know, 30 something self, which is not old by, you know, opera standards, but by tennis standards. He's he's definitely, you know, a veteran now. And Holger Runa, when they gave him the mic to like give his acceptance speech, 
he literally sounded like he was like still going through puberty. Like his voice was so high, <laughs> and he looks like uh, a, he looks like a Cabbage Patch kid. That's how cute he is. Like he's got chubby cheeks and like little tiny lips, and like um, you know, just he's just very fresh faced and tiny. Maybe he's just a tennis haute contre. Matt, uh, because George is not here, I am looking to you for our update on Dabers. Yeah, you're you're not the only one who has to read uh, something that really disagrees with you constitutionally, because he (laughs) is trying to make this orange and blue take over for the black and gold that is instilled in my being. Uh, But the Bears had uh, not a a successful game, but they did get a kind of a record out of it. It's one of those sports records that's like, oh, the first time that this was done on a Tuesday by someone with a mustache. Um, Their their quarterback, Justin Fields, who's in his second season, has set the record for the most rushing yards by a quarterback in a regular season game uh, with 178 yards rushed uh, in the game on Sunday. Still behind the all-time record of uh, Colin Kaepernick, who had 181, but that was in a playoff game. So for this record doesn't count uh tragic and just for those people who aren't uh football fans i couldn't think of the sport (laughs) Um, so people like oliver exactly both of those names colin kaepernick and justin fields those are black guys Yes, Oliver. Yes, very well said. <laughs> you did it. Such you an artful it. introduction. We've, 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 we've solved racism thanks to Oliver. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Well, it was a match made in heaven when we at Opera Box Score heard about Gods of the Game, a football opera, back in January of this year. Get this. A full orchestra in the pit, familiar opportunes, and a video chorus of football fans brings the thrill of the World Cup to the stage. The world premiere of Gods of the Game took place at Grange Park Opera in England last month. Commissioned by Sky Arts, the TV station, and starring actor and comedian Lee Mack in the commentary box, Gods of the Game is a glorious celebration and a bitter condemnation of the world's most popular sport. The show goes out on the Sky Arts Channel in the UK, November 13th. Music by Julian Phillips is the head composer, along with his students from the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, with a libretto by Phil Porter. Inside the Huddle is a double header to talk about gods of the game. First up is Wasti Kani, the general director of Grange Park Opera. Waspi was born in London's East End to parents from Delhi and Agra who had fled India at partition to take refuge in the UK. After studying music at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, she worked in programming and designing financial computer systems. In 1992, Waspi was made chief executive of Garsington Opera, and in 1997, she founded her own opera company, Grange Park Opera, which in 2016 moved to an estate in Surrey, England. And here, in just 11 months, she led the construction of The Theatre in the Woods, a 700-seat opera house based on La Scala, which is the UK's first new opera house to be built in the 21st century. Since its inception, Grange Park Opera has produced more than 80 operas while receiving no government subsidy. Asfikani received a CBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours List for Services to Music, she joined me over the phone from London, and 
I asked her first to help set up what the idea of the English country house opera is and how Grange Park fits into that world. Country house opera was invented by Glyndebourne. It was invented by John Christie in about the 1930s. His grandson, Gus, who's my friend, he now runs it. And in about 1990, so long time afterwards, Garsington was invented. It was very, very small. And I was kind of bought in there at about 1992. And my goal there was to build it up. So I stayed there for five years. I kind of quadrupled the size of it. And then a banker said to me, Waspy, you'll never, ever be fully in charge in Garsington. You need to set up your own place. So I set up my own place um, called Grange Park Opera. And I moved it from Hampshire to Surrey to be closer to London in 2017. And then we were just getting going and everything was going really, 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 really well. And then the pandemic happened. And now it's very difficult for everyone. But the concept of country house opera, I think you have things like that at Santa Fe or... Um, I'm sure you've got others as well. The idea is that when you go to the opera at the Royal Opera House, which I love, it's always a bit of a hassle because it starts at 7.30. Should I eat before? Should I eat afterwards? Should I not eat at all? And then where shall I park? Uh, what if it's raining? I have to rush. I have to dash to the tube. So we make the whole, we say, set aside a bit more of your life, set aside a half day and really go into another world. Now, our place down in Surrey, it is, you know, it's a very, it's a, 14th century house and the 16th century garden so 17th century garden so you really do feel though you're on the edge of London sort of the city is far away and the idea is that you arrive and you everyone's looking very beautiful we encourage people to really be rather elegant and gorgeous so George you'll fit in perfectly and then um, <laughs> with all that curly hair of yours and then uh, and then, you know, so you, you look, you investigate these gardens because there is a series of walled gardens. And then you walk through a very historic orchard with a 300 year old mulberry tree, which probably was being planted when Queen Elizabeth I, she stayed there for a week. And then you go through another wall and there's a huge opera house, five story opera house. Go to the first act go back through the orchard, go and have your picnic, go and dine in the 14th century house, leisure, 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 go back for the second half, go to sleep if you want to go to sleep because you've drunk too much. Um, and, you know, the whole thing's meant to be about leisure, leisure and and um, and chewing and consuming and feeling music, but are surrounded by leisure and not surrounded by freneticness. And location is so much to do with that. Well, that so all, yeah, you know, we all tried to make our places look as gorgeous as possible. I was very lucky because when this famous guy, Bamba Gascoigne, inherited this place on the edge of London from his aunt, who happened to be a duchess, uh, when he inherited, and I went to him and I said, oh, I think what I need to do is build an opera house just in the woods, just behind the orchard. And he said, yes, that's just what I've always wanted. He was in his foot, he was in his 80s. And he never thought he was going to have such a big, wonderful new project. So, but the, the, as I said, there's a series of formal gardens, probably planted in the 17th century. There are 700 yards of, of brick wall that were built in the 17th century. Extraordinary. And then this rather wild orchard. You, the time really to come is after the operas are finished. If you come along in August or September, they're like 10 million apples that are very tart. And I love them. I love them. I'm always picking up whole bagfuls of apples and I have a mainly apple diet. 
your path to founding and to running Grange Park is truly extraordinary. You are the daughter of parents from India. You go to Oxford. You work in financial computer systems. So here you are in this business, and you're a woman, and you're a person of color. It, it's it's utterly amazing. So what have been like the guiding principles that have led you and Grange Park to where they are today? Okay, I have one guiding principle for the whole of my life, and that is to work a bit harder than everyone else. That's my guiding guiding principle. What does what does what does um, hard work mean? Yeah, just always try your very very hardest, and my hardest is probably a bit harder than. Well, it might not be harder than your hardest, but it might be. So, um, well, my yeah, my guiding principle is to, and my guiding principle also is actually. I want everything to be perfect or as close to perfect as possible. And you could say that I'm a control freak, but I think if you, I think if I espouse perfection, then the people around me will espouse perfection. And I think that I've built up a group of people around me and I think that's what they do. You know, they know that you, it's not a case of, oh, I can get away with that. You know, every single thing, every bit of signage, you know, the, we, we built the most amazing round lavatory building, but you don't really want to hear about that, George, do you? Do you want to hear about I, my lavatories? I, I, I would love to hear about your lav. Okay, this is what is truly extraordinary. So when we were building this theatre in, in uh, I was going to say 1917, but it was 2017, <laughs> the architect said, oh, of course, what you should do is you should put the lavatories in, in the basement. And I said, the trouble with putting lavatories in the basement, I've seen this, there's a queue going in, and there's a queue coming out because they're all going out the way they're going in. I'm going to keep that queue, the lavatory queue, away from the queue of people waiting to go into the opera house. So I built a little separate building. And everyone said, well, of course, the easiest thing to do is just put a little square building there. And I said, no, 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 I want to make it as difficult as possible. I'm going to build a round building. And the round building will allow people to come in one side and go out the other side. So there's not a queue. And there are 23 ladies cubicles, but this is really too much information. Um, but you know, even the lavatory roll holders and the locks and everything about that and the beautiful, rather than putting mirrors above the taps, you don't do that because people stand and block up the wash basins. There are special beautification areas. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a control freak. It's all about leisure. It's all about leisure and, and people and being somewhere where you that you think is exceptional and you know many people do arrive at the opera and they say um they say to the person at the gate they, oh no they go to the champagne bar they pick up a glass of champagne and they go where's the lavatorium rotundum <laughs> they're more interested in that than in the opera house you can't see it because it's behind these wonderful 17th century brick walls anyway that was that gods of the game is a pretty extraordinary opera speaking of extraordinary what was what was the germ and the seed of that the path to commissioning and developing this opera okay so in so in all honesty this isn't my idea that's very your big of you to say that. <laughs> this is not my idea your listeners may be horrified to hear this when the words and now for the sports news, I'd like the radio to turn itself off. So the truth is, I think I have a negative interest in sports. <laughs> what happened was that, sorry, but what happened was Sky, 
which are a big, 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 big broadcaster. I think they, the Sky Arts people realised that Sky Sports were going to get all the juicy bits all around the World Cup and no one was ever going to watch Sky Arts. And they had this amazingly, unbelievably visionary idea that they were going to commission an opera. And though they commissioned it, I, they needed a facilitator. So basically, they needed a theatre because they didn't just want to film it like a film. They wanted it to be in a proper opera house with people watching it and with all the restrictions of the stage rather than, you know, you can do anything on film. So it was their idea. And then I was providing really the venue and the machine to create it. I was a little bit involved in the commissioning, but it wasn't in, you know, there were, they had some separate people doing it. How was it received? Well, interestingly, most of my opera people didn't want to come and they were sending me messages saying, why would I want to come to an opera about football? I'm looking forward to Tristan and Isolde. A lot of different people came who hadn't been to our venue before, that they yeah. hadn't seen our opera house. And then some of our regulars came and I got some, I got most of my, most of the messages I got, they said it was completely amazing. How brilliant of you to do this and something totally different. But I did get one message which said, Wasfi, how could you possibly have done this? It was terrible. Of course, it wasn't terrible. It was produced. It wasn't terrible, but she didn't like it. But I get a lot of this stuff. Um, so it was it had very, very high production standards, had a live orchestra. Um, it's very colourful. I hope your people will watch it on Sky. Um, yeah, it had some it had some sort of rousing anthems, which very annoyingly went round and round my head and I couldn't get rid of them. But I've just got rid of them. So don't sing them. Please. I won't. I won't sing the them. That's what, that's what makes them so good. Right. Is that everybody can sing. Ah! You'll you'll never walk alone or whatever it is they sing up in the. In, in Liverpool, but surely working on the show and having this be in your opera house, surely that has changed that the uh, the negative interest in sports to a positive interest. <laughs> George, I think you need. I think I need a lot more therapy than just you <laughs> smiling nicely at me to say that this will have changed me. I mean, I think the problem is we all have so few minutes alive on this earth and there is you know i'm really interested in archaeology <laughs> so and there's so much to learn about archaeology i just don't have the time to do the sports thing yeah yeah but the show i mean the show is ostensibly about sports but surely it's about much more than just football well it's, it's about kind of it's about greed and corruption and there's some funny moments and um Actually, there are a couple of very, very clever scenes when Sky Arts got Sky Sports to record in their, you know, their commentary studios that they use during football matches. But they, they obviously scripted it. And so at one point in the opera, well, at three points in the opera, you see the whole sort of Sky studio projected onto the back of the stage. And they're all commenting about what's happening in the opera. And I thought that was actually very, very witty and very different. Um, no, I did actually enjoy it, and I'm very, very glad we did it. So it's about yeah, but it's about it's it's about bad people and good people and how the good people win, of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, is is there any death in this opera? Most operas have death in them. 
the most, well, at the very end, the president, who's a bad person, <laughs> he leaves the stage. He leaves the stage saying, I think I might try my hand at politics. <laughs> that is tantamount to death. Thanks again to Grange Park Opera General Director Waspikani joining us on Opera Box Score. It's an Inside the Huddle double header on Gods of the Game. English soprano Millie Forrest studied the Royal Academy of Music and the Royal College of Music. She was awarded the Farrier Love Day Song Prize in 2020. Last March, she sang with the Jenny Parker Young Artists in a Royal Opera House project championing new works by female composers as part of International Women's Day. With her regular duo partner, Hamish Brown, she's given recitals at the Wigmore Hall and performed at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club, Cadogan Hall, and is recorded at Abbey Road Studios. She also joined me on the phone from London, where I asked her to first and foremost set up the plot of Gods of the Game and her role in it. Vico and I, I'm, I was playing the role of Ava. We're childhood friends who grew up together playing football. Um, and Vico has become such an international celebrity that he's slightly fallen out of love with the game. Um, and Eva, Ava sees it as her duty to sort of uh, help him find himself again. And um, and by the end of the opera, I, I think she does. That was super pithy and concise. That was <laughs> that was sh- shorter than a football game well, itself. Yeah, I can give you some some. Um, I can tell you a little bit more, but I, I don't want to give away any spoilers. Don't give it away. <laughs> don't give it away. Let's listen to a clip. Millie, this is you singing with Michelle D'Souza, who played the role of Vico in the aria, Everything is Football.
Everything is Football. That's the aria that we just listened to. Tell us a little bit about that specific moment in the show and, and what does that mean for you, your character, and what was it like to prepare that specific aria? It's a duet. So um, at that particular moment, we are competing against wealthier countries than our own to host the uh, next year's World Cup tournament. And um, our bid for that host is uh, is this speech that's a duet between me and Biko. Um, and it comes towards the, uh, it's about halfway through act one. And up until uh, the duet starts, I'm not sure whether Biko's gonna turn up to come and do it with me. And um, I start, I get to the end of my first line and then he says, Ava, I'm not too late, am I? And then we continue the rest of the duet together. What was the rehearsal process like for this piece? So it's an opera composed in English, but it's also a world premiere. Things can get squishy, things can get dicey, things can get contentious, and things can also be brilliant. Uh, what was this process like? Um, well, uh, we didn't have a lot of time. Um, it was a short opera. It's only uh, 90 minutes long, probably. But um, we had we started rehearsals uh, last week of August and the first show was the 6th of October. So it was a slow, uh, sorry, very, very, um, a very quick change around. And um, so that brings, yes, it brings a bit of stress. But at the same time, I like that because uh, everyone had commitments and um we were encouraged to improvise a lot, go with our instincts, and we were blessed with the most incredible cast of actors. Everyone was amazing on stage. We had an incredible director, an incredible uh, choreographer who um, who just brought it all together. And then we were totally brought to life by this incredible chorus that we had. So the process, yeah, it was rushed, but it had a lot of energy and direction. Talk me through the chorus a little bit more, right? They were singing football anthems? Yeah, exactly. So um, they, bless them, they had probably uh, 10 costume changes in just a two-act opera. Uh, they worked so, so hard. Um, and yeah, they were singing um, football anthems. They were, they were being um, fans. They were being hot dog vendors. They were being cleaners. They were being, uh, they were representing everyone who plays a role in, um, in the game and hosting football events. Uh, that yeah, they were amazing, and um, it wouldn't be the same show without them. So you're creating the role of Ava in this process. How important is sports really in like the day to day of rehearsals? Right, like it's a show about football, but it's about so much more than that. You know, what what do you need to know as a singer actor creating this role? Yeah, so uh, I was really nervous. <laughs> before doing uh before the rehearsal started because um yeah I've had a baby over the last year so I've been the amount of activity that I've done is the amount of gym time has been limited um so I was a little bit nervous that like I would just look like like, look like an idiot um but actually uh, I love sports and um in the past I've always kept fit I've always it's a really important part of being a healthy uh working musician it's really important to be physically fit uh, because of how much we ask of our bodies so in yeah in the rehearsal room it was um it was more about learning to walk like an athlete to carry your body 
as if you were wearing a lot more muscle actually because um we had one two two athletes actually in in uh in the cast in the um amongst the principals who go to the gym twice a day but um for me and Michelle it was a little bit more like we we felt like we had a bit more of a point to prove <laughs> and um yeah it was about you know moving with a lower center of gravity making sure that we didn't look too singery when we were walking around the stage and um after a week of uh, rehearsals I decided right I'm only going to come to rehearsals in leggings and uh, <laughs> and sweatshirt <laughs> um because it just helped us get into the characters more um in terms of staging uh we we had to uh, recreate a football match on stage which was hard and the choreographer came up with this amazing idea of telling the females football football final through my eyes so the audience just saw flashes of what I had going across um in front of me and um that was very clever so it involved very minimal ball activity <laughs> uh, but there was one crucial moment where I had to take a penalty and I missed so um it I did have to look like a, an athlete on stage. Wow. Sh shadows of Gareth Southgate in Euro 96, missing that critical penalty. But he's redeemed himself now that, that England made it to the, the final a couple, the last, last year. It's interesting what you say, Millie, about, about singers and athletes, because I've always believed that, right, is that singers and opera are three things. Obviously, they're phenomenal musicians. They're expected to be great actors, but a third of their job is to be an athlete, right? There is no art form I can think of that is so demanding and so punishing. And I think maybe it has to do with, with breath and with breathing. What's, what's your take on that? Uh, yeah, I think I totally agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. Um, we, we use our lungs in a very abnormal way. We have to release uh, to take big breaths and then release our air very slowly but with no um uh tension yeah. so we have to do it very freely and with lots of flexibility and with actually it's more about releasing the breath rather than how much you're taking it in um which is very similar to how athletes work as well it's not about holding the breath it's about releasing it in a in a controlled but relaxed way so I think you're absolutely right. What we ask of our bodies is um, is is really colossal, and um, it takes a long time to perfect. Um, and uh, yeah, and there are times when it just doesn't do exactly what you're expecting it to do. <laughs> Guys, if the game comes out later in November, what what is next up for you on your roster? Um, so we're entering, well, we're, we're, we're into the dreaded audition season now here in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, auditions start mid September and go on until Christmas really. So yeah, I've got a few of those and, um, and then some lovely concerts around Christmas time. Um, I'm currently understudying for the Royal Ballet, um, which, uh, which is amazing. And I'm very, very lucky to have worked with them. Um, and then I'm back there again with the Royal Ballet in February on another project. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure what I'm doing for the summer yet. I have a few a few options to weigh up um, and we'll see what happens after some auditions. That is the business, right? It is, it is auditioning. And of course, you're a parent. Before I let you go, 
give me 30 seconds on what what is the day-to-day life you know being an opera singer and also being a parent um yeah and we were still like figuring it out (laughs) um it's just kind of you just find a way of making things work we're very lucky that um uh we kind of went like hell for leather on sleep routines from very early on because I don't think you can do this job sleep deprived (laughs) just don't think you can so we're very lucky um we're both me and my husband are both freelance musicians and we're both well rested and and we've got lots of help nearby very willing grandparents but um yeah it's hard it's really really tricky and um uh yeah we just sort of take it in turns so it was his turn to be the full-time parent when I was doing gods of the game and uh and then he's just got back from brazil so it was my turn for the week so yeah we're just juggling it about and um and yeah it's amazing but yeah it's sometimes it's tricky and thanks again to millie forest who plays the role of ava in gods of the game again gods of the game coming out on sky arts in the uk november 13th So last weekend, I finally aired my interview with Larry Brownlee, which I recorded at Opera Philadelphia. Thank you, Frank Luzzi. And um, I had a little extra content, so I decided to uh, offer it up to OBS. Uh, You remember that Larry Brownlee made his French Baroque role debut uh, as Platé in Paris, of all places, Paris National Opera. Mm. And uh, I've always fancied myself to be like semi odd contra uh when i was chasing after scene career i definitely have like the uh ability to do coloratura but not the stamina somehow for rossini but somehow i could sing french baroque stuff because it just stayed in that tessitura Mm-hmm. And that, like, just like in, an, in a bit of an unyielding way. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> if I could just keep my voice there, then I don't have to, you know, worry about singing beautiful tone like on the bottom of the register. Right. So um, somehow I just was more comfortable singing that old contra stuff. And I always thought that how come there are not more bel canto tenors of trying to sing this music? Well, it makes sense. It's because you need in bel canto to have a beautiful tone all the time. And you need to be able to sing, you know, with evenness of vibrato and just beautiful color from top to bottom. And that's not necessarily required of haute contras. But here is Larry Brownlee. (laughs) Here's Larry Brownlee kind of flirting with this repertoire. And I encourage you all to go just type in a search engine, the video of this production, uh, seeing Larry Brownlee dressed up as the nymph plate the water nymph plate and he seems to have discovered some new comic chops in doing this show anyway here's what larry brownlee had to say about it this coloratura ability of yours uh, has also very recently led you to sing rameau and if i'm not mistaken is this your first rameau role <laughs> that you did it is my first uh, baroque french baroque rameau any of that it was the first for all of those. Okay, so I'm so excited about this. I hope that we get more of this from you. There's not a recording of this, but <laughs> you sang uh, in one of my favorite operas, uh, an opera called Plate, uh, which is supposed to be a comedy, but is actually one of the most heartbreaking oh, things. <laughs> it is. Oh, it's so awful. It's so awful, but I enjoyed it a great deal. Well, 
just to put the opera in a nutshell, um, Jupiter uh, is playing a game and uh, pretends to be interested in a very unattractive water nymph, uh, <laughs> which you play. Uh, it's a gender bender for you. Uh, and uh, you are supposed to get married to Jupiter. And um, yes, you are the butt of the joke. And, I am. Yeah. Uh, um, they all go through to great lengths to yeah. embarrass me, to humiliate me in front of everyone else. Uh, they treat me horribly, terribly. Uh, and it's just the meanest thing. Plate, all she wants is love. Yeah. You know, and she believes she's the most beautiful thing in the world. Yeah. She believes she's the most wonderful water nymph who just is, she believes that everybody wants her, mm -hmm. which is comical in that sense. Uh, but at the end of the opera, when they're publicly humiliating her, it's heartbreaking. And they treat her so, so terribly that uh, so many people thought this is just the worst thing in the world. And so uh, it was great to play that. You had a lot of dramatic meat on the yeah. bone to play. And uh, and it's high. It is. It is high. <laughs> and even when I looked at it, um, you you know, some of the instrumentation sometimes can be, well, the tone could be played at a lower pitch or a higher pitch. Mm -hmm. And so since I had worked already with Mark Minkowski, he said, well, Larry has a high voice. Let's put it at A434 or 438 or something like that, which is high. It wasn't 420 thing or 420 anything or 415, which is a little bit, bit lower. So singing it at that pitch, uh, singing what's written very high. And a lot of people kind of mix that anyway. Yeah. I don't usually mix. I mean, I can mix, yeah. but I just sing with my voice. Singing that was just, <laughs> yeah. it was a great uh, experiment in what my voice and technique can do. From performances of 
Ramos Plate, the aria for the title character, Kite Nymph Kite, with Larry Brownlee and uh, Mark Minkowski conducting. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Arts Council of England has announced that future funding will focus on organizations outside of central London, causing English National Opera to be defunded by £12.6 million. Over the next three years, ENO will receive £17 million to develop a new business model and is expected to move to Manchester. The news comes as other major opera houses also saw reduced funding, such as the Royal Opera House, down 10%, Welsh National Opera down 34%, and Glyndebourne, which saw a 50% reduction. The opening of a Maria Callas Museum in Athens is being planned for the Soprano Centenary Year 2023. The Callas 100 celebration began earlier this season at Teatro San Carlo di Napoli and will likely inspire similar tributes all over the world. OBS will be sure to update this story as Callas was known to cancel. <laughs> Angela Wee has been appointed a Principal Associate Concert Master of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Wee is a second prize winner of the Sarasate International Competition and was a finalist in the Menuhin International Violin Competition in Beijing. Teatro Real de Madrid has received the 2022 Medallas de Oro from the Academia de las Artes Escénicas for its essential role in the dissemination and practice of the performing arts. Meanwhile, Catherine Cook, Philip Skinner, and Dale Travis were honored in a ceremony following a performance of Dialogues of the Carmelites at San Francisco Opera in recognition of their artistic excellence over three decades with the company. On the disabled list, Oksana Leenev has withdrawn from conducting the upcoming performances of Tosca at LA Opera due to personal reasons. Former LA Opera young artist Louis Lorazeb will take over the podium in her stead, making his main stage debut with the company. Exit stage right, Russian soprano Galina Pisarenko has died at age 88. Pisarenko was a member of the Moscow Academic Musical Theater from the 60s until 1990. She later co-founded and directed Moscow New Opera and taught at the Moscow Conservatory. And on this day, November 7th in 1702, it was the first performance of André Campra's Tancrede in Paris. André Gretry had a premiere, Les Méprises par Ressemblance, in Fontainebleau in 1786, and 15 years later, in 1801, his La Casque et les Colombes premiered in Paris. In 1829, it was the first performance of Fromental à Lévis, Le Dilettante d'Avignon, in Paris. In 1876, Frederick Smetana's Hubitska, Hubitska, or The Kiss, premiered in Prague. In 1910, it was the first performance of Naughty Marietta by Victor Herbert. That was on Broadway. Hail to the Queen, 1926. It was the birthday. It is the birthday of Dame Jones Sutherland. we got to get ready for uh, Sutherland 100 in four years, everybody. <laughs> Happy birthday to uh, Welsh soprano Dame Gwyneth Jones, born this day in 1936. we got to get ready for <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jones 90. <laughs> In 1941, it was the birth of German mezzo-soprano Trudelise Schmidt. In 1943, uh, Canadian mezzo-soprano Judith Forst was born. Happy birthday. And happy birthday to American composer Stephen Stuckey, born this day, November 7th, in 1949. And that's your two-minute drill.
just heard the end of the Semiramide aria, Bel Raggio Losing Gear, sung by Joan Sutherland on her stunning vocal recital, The Art of the Prima Donna from 1960. If you have listened to Sutherland before and like are not really sure what it's all about, you need to listen to this album because she sounds inhumanly good here on all of the hardest repertoire that has ever been written for the soprano voice. And surprise that in the Willow song from Otello, which is like, why would she be singing this? It's actually very, very good. It's and very you can like good. understand yeah. the words. Yeah. It's really, yeah. it's really yeah. amazing singing. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to a Sutherland 100 for sure. They won't be uh, celebrating it at the Coliseum. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So uh, why don't you tell us all about that, Matt? Because things are kind of, uh, London bridges are falling down a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot is kind of going unsaid in these articles that probably because they're from British publications and everyone over there knows that their government is just like completely falling apart these days. Yeah. As, as though... um. Like, as though we have any room to talk, but <laughs> some things aren't universal. Uh, so massive cuts coming to many, many of the cultural institutions across England. And one of their uh, one one of their main goals, apparently, is to, to reduce the amount of funding that's going to London and central London specifically. Right. And, and prioritize uh, or organizations that are in the out on like on the outside of the city or in other parts of the country. The Shire. And, yes. The <laughs> The proverbial shire. Uh, and so English National Opera really ended up on the chopping block here. They yeah. typically receive like 12 million pounds in grants, and that was axed to zero for their normal operating expenses. These articles say that that, that adds up to about a third of their annual operating budgets. Because uh, England is kind of in between the American one, where it's all based on donations and ticket sales, and like the, the rest of Europe, where the government really carries the bag to make sure that the lights stay on. Yeah. But so the only money that they were able to get was for, was this 17 million pound grant that's supposed to last them three years. And basically they're saying, which that if you do a little bit of back of the envelope math here, that comes to less than half of what they were getting annually before. And with that new grant, they're supposed to come up with an entirely new business model and relocate to another city. Yep. And, um, that doesn't really seem like how math works to me, but I'm not a billionaire <laughs> prime minister. Yeah, obviously a lot of turmoil in the government over there. Uh, um, uh, economy crashing, pound going down. Uh, and I think a general push from the uh, the Tories to privatize as much as they possibly can, which has been their MO for quite some time now. And uh, it, I, it, it feels like in some ways that it's finally coming to these big arts institutions um, and to as speaking as an American to all of our British listeners, uh, welcome to the pool. The water is not fine uh, in terms of the lack of government funding. No, um, it's a wave pool. pool. It's full of <laughs> diapers that probably got ripped off of other babies and you might die at any moment. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, if you if you really like work this problem back, you can probably attach it to, you know, uh, the pandemic and then, of course, Brexit and, you know, compounding problems all the way down i bet if you looked really hard you could find a way that this is all margaret thatcher's fault which i'm yeah. in favor of personally <laughs> but yeah it's a, it's kind of the same you know if if something's wrong in the u.s it's probably reagan's fault if something's wrong in the uh, the british isles it's probably thatcher that but said in any case, by, the, by the time we record our next episode 
The Crown season five will have dropped, and I am very excited. I thought you were going to say by the time this uh, uh, this drops, we'll have uh, seen the elections from the midterms, so we might not be in a position to talk talk about <laughs> that, Britain anymore. That, we that also too, might yeah. have a new prime minister by then. Who That's can true. Say these days? <laughs> Place your bets now, everybody. Yeah, not a, kind of a slow news week. Other otherwise, I will say um, uh, to everyone in the UK who is. In, hurting in more ways than one right now uh i really sympathize do your best um to get through this and hopefully you guys can have a general election at some point soon and start fixing things but good luck everybody good luck yeah it's tough out there let's do some good call bad call (laughs) good call bad call on Opera Box Score. So uh, I'm going to go a little off book here because George isn't here to stop me. And I'm going to go ahead and have a little good call. We got a little mini miss listener mailbag here from a certain uh, Anthony from the Bronx. Hey, George. This is Anthony from the Bronx. I've called you before, George. Anyway, I was listening to the latest episode And the guys were talking about this contest, the singers, but I didn't know what contest it was. They never said the name. At one point, they said, he who should not be named. And I thought, is there a Harry Potter contest for singers? That's wonderful. People love Harry Potter. Any chance to get Harry Potter into opera is okay by me, George. So anyway... If there's any clarification you can give to me, I'd appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the week off. Bear down, Chicago Bears, right? Am I right? Yeah. Anyway, I'll talk to you later, George. Oh, Anthony, as erudite and confused as (laughs) always. I love it. Uh, Oliver Camacho. I just want to shout out a friend of the show, Lydia Yankovskaya, who uh, it doesn't, I mean, you can never stop talking about what she's doing. She's always got something else cooking. And she just made her debut with LA Philharmonic. And earlier last month, she uh, conducted Chicago Symphony Orchestra's music. No, she participated in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Music Now series. Um, And she's currently in rehearsals for King Roger, uh, the um, Szymanowski Opera. Szymanowski Opera, yeah, which opens uh, in about two weeks. Uh, So I don't know how she does it, uh, but she came on to WFMT to talk about um, the Szymanowski and to hint about, uh, give hints about the um, other operas that are happening this season at COT. And I think the board of directors at COT must feel so proud of themselves for having snagged her as her star was rising. <laughs> and really, I mean, like everybody knows this name, you know, she just conducted Edward Tulane and Minnesota opera. And there's so many other things that I'm sure I'm not even remembering that she's done recently. Um, what a star, what an advocate for contemporary opera and what like just a great person also for like mothers, <laughs> just to be frank, yeah. like she's just incredible. And I, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing King Roger because I trust her. I, you know me, I'm not a contemporary opera guy, but I 
I trust her taste, and I know I'm going to get something out of it because it's her. I, I, I'm not sure if I would call King Roger contemporary, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a great For me, opera. it is. I, I mean, anything it. anything after that's 1800 true. to me. So. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, last time <laughs> Oliver saw a new opera, it was by uh, it was by Verdi, and he had a heart attack. <laughs> Matt Cummings. Yeah, we will be putting into our show notes uh, a really touching story from NPR uh, by Jody Hilton, who wrote this up about an Ukrainian opera singer named Olha Abukamova. And it tells about her uh, emigration to the U.S. as a part of the uh, fleeing the conflict over there from Putin's war on Ukraine uh, and details how one of the things that she had to make sure that there was room for in their luggage was her Ukrainian sheet music because the because it's just so important to her for that that music survives and that she is able to like carry it forward onto the next phase of her life so a really powerful statement about uh just how central music is to all of our lives that maybe uh the uk cultural ministry could uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can only hope, right? That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. And maybe that's it for this week's uh, edition of Opera in Britain as a whole. We'll find out. Our <laughs> announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast. On Stitcher and Spotify, click follow. On Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is me. For your co-host Matt Cummings and our guests Wasfi Kani, Millie Forrest, and Larry Brownlee, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you plan your Callus 100 party. We're back with an all-new show next week when we go inside the huddle with soprano Megan Gillis. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more defunding British opera. Join us!